Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to this Postscript edition of New Books and Political Science on the New Books Network. On Postscript, we engage expert authors about contemporary political events, and today we'll focus on the U.S. Supreme Court and the Second Amendment. It's hard to exaggerate the extent to which the most recent term of the U.S. Supreme Court changed the substance of the laws Americans live by and the method by which this court determines whether a law is constitutional. The court upended a century, half century of abortion jurisprudence, challenged laws that govern tribal s- sovereignty, and undercut the power of Congress to make and implement laws regarding climate change. The abortion ruling in Dobbs v. Jackson consumed much of the press coverage and public outrage, but the case we'll focus on today, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, not only overturned a century-old statute regulating the concealed carry of guns in public, it changed the rules for determining what is or is not protected by the U.S. Constitution. And with me to unpack the consequences of this ruling are Joseph Bloker, the Lanty L. Smith 67 professor of law at Duke University School of Law and one of the attorneys who helped write the brief for the District of Columbia in the original Heller case, He co-authored The Positive Second Amendment, Rights Regulation and the Future of Heller from Cambridge with Daryl Miller, the first book that I actually covered for the New Books in Political Science podcast, so I'm fond of it. Um, He combines numerous influential law review articles with public-facing scholarship, and I'm so happy to have him back on Postscript. Thank you so much for having me back, Susan. It's great to see you again. (laughs) Always a pleasure. Andrew Willinger is new to the podcast. Uh, He's the executive director of the Duke Center for Firearms Law at Duke University Law School. He joined the center in June 2022 after practicing as a litigation associate at Patterson, Bellcap, Webb, and Tyler in New York. At Patterson, Willinger uh, litigated complex commercial disputes and false advertising and defamation cases. He previously clerked for Judge William L. Osteen Jr. of the Middle District of North Carolina. So welcome, Andrew. Thanks so much for having me, Susan. So we've devoted several postscript conversations uh, to highlight what to look for in the oral arguments and to guess at the outcome based on the questions posed by the justices in those oral arguments. But I'll remind all of us that the case centers around two men in New York who applied for an unrestricted license to carry a concealed firearm in public. New York State's 100-year-old law says that the state may issue a license Um, And although both men were denied unrestricted concealed carry licenses, they both were issued concealed carry for hunting target only, and one was granted concealed carry related to work travel. The two men and the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association argued before the Supreme Court that New York State's requirement for proper cause to get a permit violated the Second Amendment. 
Supreme Court agreed, and in a 6-3 ruling, they overturned New York State's regulating of concealed carry. Andrew, New York State was, before Bruin, uh, a what we call a May-issue state for concealed carry. And let's just make sure the context is clear for everyone. Uh, across the U.S., how do states regulate concealed carry, and, and how many of them had laws similar to New York State's? And then we'll talk about whether all of those states have to change their laws. Sure. Um, so the court in Bruin draws this line, and, and I think we may talk about this a bit later, but it's not quite as, as clear as maybe the court would like, but between uh, May issue regimes and shall issue regimes. Um, May issue regimes are ones that have, like New York's did, a requirement, a discretionary uh, licensing requirement that the applicant needs to show some kind of you know, in New York, it's called proper cause. In other states, it's called an exceptional circumstance. Um, but basically, the applicant needs to show some special reason why he or she should get a concealed carry permit. Um, and that, at least in New York's case, was construed pretty strictly. So you needed to show, you know, that you had been subject to threats yourself or that you had a stalker or something like that. It wasn't enough to just say, you know, I live in a high crime area and I'm worried walking to and from work. Um the other, the other uh, bucket of licensing regimes, shall issue regimes, are at least in theory object, uh, objective. So the, the, those regimes have objective criteria. Um, they ask whether the applicant is of a certain age. Has com- in, some, in some states, the applicant's required to complete training. Um, whether the applicant uh, is disqualified for certain reasons, such as having been convicted of a crime. Um, so these are ob- objective factors that the licensing official considers um, and then decides, well, it doesn't decide, issues the permit or doesn't issue the permit, right? Um, and so that, that's, the, you know, that's the division that the court draws in Bruin. And um, by the court's count, there are six states plus the District of Columbia, that includes New York, um, that had may issue licensing regimes. Um, 43 states have shall issue regimes, or at least did before Bruin. Um, And then there's one state, Vermont, that's sort of a unique case that has basically never had a a gun permit system at all. Um, So that's that's kind of the lay of the land um, going into the Bruin case. Um, One other thing to note about that, though, is that of those shall issue states, um, within the past decade or so, there's been a, a real movement toward what's called permitless carry. So in a lot of those states, even though they have nominally a permit system and they do issue some permits, um, you're actually able to carry a concealed weapon without a permit so long as you have meet the eligibility criteria. Okay. So we have three states that really don't require anything, states that have a list, and as long as you can check the boxes on the list you're in, and the type that New York State had, which was more discretionary, even though you've checked the boxes they get to determine, as you say, whether there's a particular interest that you have in terms of your work or your personal situation. Um, Joseph, the the furor over this case was not just about the overturning of New York State's century-old law, although it it did affect, as Andrew says, a lot of people, almost 25% of the U.S. population. But it was more the approach that the court took, the way it interpreted the Constitution, um, you and your colleague, Daryl Miller, also a previous guest on the program, um, submitted an amicus brief asking the court to continue the old way of reviewing these cases that had been used by the federal courts 
arguing that that was appropriate. So can you start us off by reminding us of what the two-step framework looked like, the, the one that had been agreed upon in the lower courts, and then explain what this new approach looks like? That's a great question, Susan. And honestly, I think that this issue, the methodology, methodology issue, is ultimately going to be the more significant holding from Bruin, the one that affects... I mean, not just these uh, regimes that Andrews just described, but all forms of gun regulation under the Second Amendment going forward. And you nicely teed this up in your introductory remarks by pointing to the difference in substance and in method uh, in the Supreme Court's recent jurisprudence here. What Andrews is describing is sort of the substance, like here's the law that the court struck down, but also, and here's the... Maybe, maybe it's more lawyerly, more in the weeds, but ultimately more practically significant the way that the court's going to analyze Second Amendment cases going, going forward. So to really get one's arms around that, I think it is helpful, you know, as, as you've asked, to understand what the courts were doing before. So if we go all the way back to District of Columbia versus Heller, the court in that case struck down a District of Columbia, essentially prohibition on handguns throughout the city. Court said, that's too much. You can't do that. That's too far. But it did not say, or at least did not clearly say, like, why? Like, what? how do we know that this law is unconstitutional, whereas prohibitions on possession by felons or domestic abusers or dangerous and unusual weapons, why those are okay? In other words, it doesn't really clearly articulate a method. It just says we're going to leave that to the lower courts to figure out, which is, you know, not not untoward. There's lots of times when the court sort of leaves doctrinal development to future cases. So what happened in just, you know, really within five years, but certainly in the you know almost 15 years between Heller and Bruin, is that the federal courts of appeal, that is the courts right below the Supreme Court, with one exception, which that court never actually reached the question, but all the ones to have reached the question settled on what we call the two-part framework. And the two-part framework asked, first, does this challenged gun law in any way impinge on any people or arms or activities that are covered by the Second Amendment? In other words, like a threshold inquiry, like are we even doing Second Amendment stuff at all? And that's the kind of question that we see in other areas of constitutional law. So for example, in free speech, um, you know, there's lots of things we do with words that don't count as speech for purposes of the First Amendment at all. Things like libel or securities fraud or child pornography, like they might involve what we maybe commonly would would, would uh, refer to as expression, but they don't count as constitutional expression at all. So the government can flatly prohibit them. They're just not even on the First Amendment's island. Likewise, for the Second Amendment, there are certain people and arms and activities like people convicted of violent felonies, people convicted of domestic violence crimes, dangerous and unusual weapons. They're just not within the Second Amendment at all. So the government can flatly prohibit let's say, you know, weapons of mass destruction. And they don't have to go through some big analysis of like, oh, here's the government interest, et cetera, et cetera. That's step one of the old framework. Lots of historical analysis at that step. For those laws that made it to the second step, lower courts would go on to ask, okay, we know we're the only Second Amendment challenge here. Has the government essentially shown a sufficient interest, like protecting lives or whatever, and that this law sufficiently furthers that interest? This is what we often call tailoring or scrutiny. And, you know, at that step... The courts would often apply what's what we call in constitutional law intermediate scrutiny, meaning they would ask, does the government have an important government interest and is this law uh, significantly tailored? Uh, sorry, does the government have a, a sufficient interest and is this law sufficiently tailored um, uh, to, to achieve it? So that was the pre-Bruin framework. But at the same time that test was developing, there was sort of an alternative test in sort of bubbling up in dissenting opinions in the lower courts, most prominently in an opinion issued by then Judge Brett Kavanaugh on the DC Circuit, which would have said, 
it's not just history at the first step. It's history all the way down. The only way to analyze the constitutionality of gun laws is by reference to text, history, and tradition. And so in the briefing leading up to this case, people like me and Daryl Miller and Eric Rubin, who was the third uh, scholar on our brief, argued the two-step framework captures the way we normally do constitutional law. It provides better guidance to judges. It's more transparent. It's less subject to manipulation. Um, that's that we should stick essentially with the good old time religion. We did not prevail uh, in convincing the justices, and they instead adopted a, um, I think, confusingly historical test, um, which certainly we can talk more about. But uh, Justice Clarence Thomas, writing for the majority, adopts this new test, which explicitly says no more of the second step in the framework. From now on, gun laws should be evaluated based solely uh, uh, by reference to their consistency with historical tradition. I think there are all kinds of problems with that and happy to talk about them more. But to, to close, I guess, where I started with your setup, uh, you mentioned earlier how we'd had lots of conversations sort of predicting the outcomes in this case. I would say this is an outcome that sadly we saw coming, um, as was the, the outcome that Andrew described. So maybe we should record our next podcast from Las Vegas or something where we can put down bets since we're so good at predicting things. But in any event, that's the summary of the method. Well, I actually think that's a really important like, not flip comment. I think that many people have seen this coming for a long time. And I think that that was something in the press coverage of Dobbs, uh, the abortion case, which was also sorely lacking. In fact, scholarship in political science, scholarship in legal circles has long seen that both Dobbs and something like Bruin were coming. And in fact, the, the, the Duke blog had, um, Jake Charles had it laid out. Here are the four possible outcomes. And I think it will be one of these two. I can hope for one, but this is what I, I think. I actually want to back because I think this does involve more than gun cases, because I think that we saw some of this new originalism, more radical originalism in the Dobbs case uh, written by Justice Alito as well, and also in the concurrence by, by Justice Thomas. When do we actually see the start of originalism? People often talk about it as if it's original, but, but actually it's really new. And so it, just say a little bit about when do we start talking about originalism and, and how is this, this Kavanaugh version of originalism, different from Justice Scalia's originalism, which is in Heller? It's a really interesting question. And I think it's important to separate. It's, sometimes when people talk about originalism, it gets conflated with just sort of reference to history. And like, I think almost everybody who does constitutional law believes that history matters. And you can go all the way back to the Marshall Court, like the first, you know, big significant um, chief justice of the of the Supreme Court and find then the justices citing essentially the original understandings of the first Congress, right? Like there's nothing, nothing strange about that. We've been doing that for a very long time. But that's different than the sort of self-conscious, self-styled uh, interpretive theory that we today call originalism, which really didn't, I mean, you know, there's lots of intellectual histories to be written here, but really didn't pop up on the scene until the 1980s, uh, associated with people like Ed Meese, um, Robert Bork, um, and, uh, and others, um, you know, Levy, there were other people writing in this tradition. And it's gone through a bunch of iterations since then. Uh, and there are many, many different forms of originalism right now. But if I was going to paint with a broad brush, I'd say you can kind of divide it into two eras. Era one, which is the sort of Robert Bork uh, version 1.0 originalism, was that what we care about is the original intent of the people who wrote the documents, right? The Constitution being the one that we care about, we care about the most. Um, and that 
you know, the, the pitch here was, well, originalism, unlike other theories of interpretation, because it's supposedly tied to historical facts, will constrain judges from writing their own political preferences into law. Like that's sort of always been, I think, for many people, the uh, those who supported at least sort of the appeal of originalism. Um, but not that much later, within 10 years, scholars like then Professor Scalia, uh, Antonin Scalia, pointed out, well, the intent thing doesn't work really well because, you know, it was a group, you know, there's shared intents or different kinds of intents. Intents are undiscoverable. What matters is what was the understanding of the people who ratified the text, right? Like the, the, they're the ones, by the way, you know, who, who consented, who, who were the we, the people who created the Constitution, not just the people who wrote it. So that move from intent to understanding was kind of the big shift for originalism. And I think we're basically still living in that era of originalism. The claims in favor of it are still largely the same. Like, as you describe, it's sort of put out as like, um, you know, a method of doing constitutional law that is separate from politics. But it's really hard to see the space between those, uh, especially after a term like the one that we just had. I mean, originalists will often say, well, you know, look to Justice Scalia and his broad, you know, rulings on the Confrontation Clause, for example, which were very friendly to criminal defendants. They're rooted in originalism. He didn't like that outcome, but he's just being honest to his opinion. I mean, honest to his um, to his reading of the of the historical materials. But ooh, it's 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 tough to find too many examples of that that cut against the grain of where a judge's or justice's preferences seem to lie. And Heller's a good example of this. I mean, Heller is original, and so is Bruin, um, the case we're talking about. But they're originalists on both sides, um, and it. You know, it's a 5-4 conservative liberal in Heller, and it's a 6-3 conservative liberal in Bruin, all citing historical material. So if you believe that history has a determinate answer, that's kind of an uncomfortable thing to have to, to have to explain. Do you think that originalism on both sides is heartfelt or strategic? In other words, did New York State put out all of this information on history because they thought history was on their side? Um, or do they actually believe in departing from the two-step framework? It's a good question. I mean, I think that probably New York must have seen, as, as we did on this podcast, and as Jake Charles did in his fantastic blog post, sort of seen the writing on the wall that the court, given the personnel uh, and their sort of stated interpretive modes, we're going to want to know a lot about history. And so, you know, for the lawyers representing New York to do that, I think is just good advocacy. Um, I think that makes sense. The justices have a different job because, of course, they're not advocates um, and their thinking strategically is, you know, they're constrained or should be constrained in, in, uh, in doing that. Like they're not outcome oriented, whereas like, you know, a person whose job it is to defend the law is like they present the best arguments they can for their sides. That shouldn't be exactly the same, I guess, as the as the justice's job. I, I guess I should say, too, like I, I don't want to leave the impression that, you know, a historical test is bad for gun laws. Uh, it shouldn't be. I mean, this is one of the things that's tricky about Bruin, even if you're an originalist, and some prominent originalists have already come out to criticize the opinion, is even if you believe that, you know, the the uh, original meaning of the Second Amendment was fixed in some significant way in 1791 or in 1868 when the 14th Amendment was ratified, there's still an enormous amount of historical evidence about gun regulation. In fact, the majority of the majority opinion, about 40 of the 60 pages, are dedicated to just distinguishing away one after another, after another, after another historical gun law regulating guns in public places. And so 
you know, I mean, there's a lot of things you can take from that. One is that if you believe in reasonable gun regulation, there is a lot of history to support you. The other is that even if you're an originalist, Bruin might not be the case to hold up as the, you know, as, 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 as a model. Um, I would say the same of Heller. I mean, Heller, when it was decided, was probably the most prominent originalist majority opinion the court had ever issued. It was certainly, I think, Justice Scalia's most significant majority opinion. He mostly wrote dissents. Heller was his first big originalist majority opinion. I think we'll see more and more of them now, but you know, you put Heller and Bruin together, even if you like the outcomes, they're not necessarily like a great model uh, for how to do historical, historical thinking. Well, and since I'm the political scientist amidst the legal scholars, now, I'll say there's a third way to look at originalism, and it's a cynical one, that in fact, it's not a jurisprudence. It's not intended to fairly distinguish the laws. What it is, is an excuse. It's, it's a, a pre-decided conclusion as to what they want, and then they find history that will work. They leave everything else out. And I think we can see that in Heller. We can see it in Rune. And I think Justice Kagan in oral arguments said, like, you know, there's a lot of history here. Like what, how are we supposed to decide one group is telling us this is definitely on the side of history and another isn't. And we'll talk a little bit about Duke's role in that later on in the conversation. I want to bring you both back in to talk about how the policy that Andrew was talking about earlier and the methodology come together. So going forward, uh, Joseph, you're saying like, this is what we're looking at. Um, in your book, uh, you know, you quoted, there's more than 5,000 laws that were seen as constitutional under Heller. So it, it wasn't that Heller shut down uh, every regulation. It was that Heller required us to think about them differently. So what do we now expect post Brune? What, what do we expect to see in terms of which laws will in fact fall or stand? I think what we're looking at, frankly, is just a lot of uncertainty um, because this purely historical test is ultimately going to require judges to engage in a whole lot of, frankly, unguided analogical reasoning. Now, there's nothing wrong with analogical reasoning. It's what lawyers do all the time. Wait, t- tell us, tell tell the non-lawyers what that or is. Analogical, I mean, it's it's what we all do all the time in classifying things as like or unalike. Uh, you know, when you sort shirts in your closet or when you, you know, you put, like, you, you put things away according to, you know, what, what they seem relevantly similar to. Um, but that's the that's the question, I guess. You know, so and so for lawyers, that would mean okay, if two you know two lawyers get before a judge and they argue, oh, this case co- governs the dispute before us, and the other one says, no, this case governs the dispute before us, they're going to argue about like, well, this one is relevantly similar because it involves the same kind of harm, and the other one will say, no, this one's relevantly similar because it was a court in this jurisdiction that decided it. Like, you know, legal education kind of teaches you what are the relevances and the similarities that that matter. Parties' names don't really matter, but like their claims do, like that kind of thing. With Bruin, what we've got, I think uniquely in constitutional law, as far as I can tell, is a up and down all the way through and through historical analogical test. And so the court, you know, recognizes rightly that a judge today considering the constitutionality of a modern gun law won't necessarily be able to find an historical forebear one way or the other for that law. So I'll take an example, you know, under current law, uh, current federal law, a person who's convicted of a crime of domestic violence is forbidden from possessing a gun, right? You will not find that law on the books in 1791 because domestic abuse was not prosecuted as a crime, let alone one for which you could lose your gun. So you're not going to find... 
But I think even a strictly originalist judge is not going to want to strike that law down, right? They're going to try to find some way to analogize to a law from 1791 or from 1868. And this is where I think all that sort of discretion and ideology and just, you know, levels of generality games are going to come in because you can identify a to go back to principle of relevant similarity in a million different ways. Uh, just then judge Amy Coney Barrett, before she jo joined the Supreme Court, said uh, in a case involving um, a person convicted of a felony, that you know, history is consistent with common sense. It shows that legislators have the power to disarm dangerous persons. Well, if that's your principle, that's great. I mean, that covers a lot of potentially, you know, a potentially broad swath of modern gun laws. But someone else might look at the historical record and say, no, 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 here's who they actually prohibited from having guns in 1791. It was Native Americans, Black Americans, people who refused to take loyalty oaths. Like those were the big categories of gun law at the time. Even the modern category of felon didn't exist in quite the same way in 1791. So there's going to be all this play in the joints when, you know, when judges are kind of how, at what level of generality do they pitch their questions? Um, I mean, another good example of this is um, what are often called sensitive place requirements, like uh, restrictions, that is guns being prohibited in certain locations like schools or government buildings or um, legislatures. Um, and Heller and the Supreme Court's 2010 decision in McDonald and Bruin itself say you can have sensitive place restrictions are okay, but they don't really tell us why or like what other places are sensitive. So like a week after Bruin is decided, somebody files a lawsuit challenging the prohibition on guns in, on the metro in D.C. And they say there's no historical tradition of prohibiting guns on on the one hand, that's obviously true. The framing generation didn't do it. They didn't have Metro. On the other hand, like, what's the tradition we're supposed to compare to? Is it fairs and markets? Is it other kinds of transit? Like, they didn't have public transit the way we do. So that's why, to me, like, marshalling the historical record is going to be really important, just like it has been so far. But so much of this is going to come down to how the questions get pitched. And there, I think there's just a lot of uncertainty. I should say, um, Andrew's got a great blog post up, actually, about how... Um, the Bruin majority even slices and dices the history and like pitches this question, like with regard to the, to the territorial laws, Andrew. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, and I, I can get into that. I mean, just to add, to add one sort of observation to Susan, to your question about what we're going to see going forward. One of the interesting things about Bruin is that the court, you know, the court says it's rejecting a two part test, right. But it really introduces a two part test of its own because you need to first make this initial determination of, is the conduct even covered by the Second Amendment? And I think what we're going to see is courts focusing a lot more on that first step in certain areas, in certain challenges that are coming forward and that we've already seen come forward post-Bruin, right? So you can see, you can imagine things like um, group prohibitions, right? The you know, domestic violence prohibitions that Joseph was talking about. Um, courts may be inclined to try to tackle that at the first step and say, you know, these are not people who are protected by the Second Amendment. Um, they may do the same thing with uh, types of weapons, right? So assault weapons bans that have been challenged that will certainly be challenged post-Bruin. Um, before Bruin, courts often sort of punted that portion of the analysis because they knew that under intermediate scrutiny, they could take account of the government's you know, objectives of preventing gun violence and they could uphold the law. But if they can't do that, then you might see courts doing a much more searching analysis of sort of, you know, are these actually the types of weapons that are protected by the Second Amendment? Are they used for self-defense or are they actually more useful for military purposes? 
No, and I think in the oral arguments, we could we could hear that tension. We had justices saying, well, you serve alcohol in this place. That makes it into a sensitive place. Or places we've heard of, Times Square, Yankee Stadium. I mean, they. they I think it was really on display that within the six justice majority, you had a lot of disagreement among the six as to what this will look like. And I think we should expect to see the sensitive places play out, be adjudicated. And I don't know that we can predict where where it would go. Andrew, let me ask you a very specific question. I mean, where are the states left after Brune in terms of what they can and cannot do? Like what room is left in the decision for localities and states to regulate concealed carry, you talked about the three types of states. Are are all may issue or proper cause regimes? You know, are they are they out? And you know, I work in a state, Pennsylvania, that when I looked at their shall issue, actually it has this language about drunkards, and and it, it does seem to um, leave quite a bit of room as to well, what is a drunkard. Uh, how do we define that? What did it mean in 1791 as opposed to 1868? Anyway, what have states done since the decision? Do you think statutes, uh, some statutes are really under threat? Like what kind of creative ways can the states handle this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's a great question. I think, you know, as as far as this narrow question of of how states can regulate concealed carry going forward, um, the court is pretty clear that may issue regimes that have a had an analog to the proper cause requirement in New York are no good, right? Those have to be changed. Um, we've already seen New York uh, pass a new law that removed that requirement and made some other notable changes that we can talk about. Um, uh, I believe all or almost all of the states that the court put into that may issue category have either changed their laws or have had, you know, an attorney general opinion letter saying, you know, going forward, uh, local officials should not apply the specific part of the of the permit system. Um, but, you know, as far as um, the sort of in between states or, or, or these these regimes that, that you referred to that might have um, factors that they consider that sort of seem discretionary, it's a really interesting question. And I think it depends how you read Bruin, right? You could either read Bruin as saying that the discretion itself is the problem. And there are certainly portions of the opinion that seem to say that, right? We're giving too much discretion to local officials to decide who gets a permit and who doesn't, and that's unacceptable. There are other portions of the opinion that can be read to suggest that strictness is really the problem, right? It's really about what percentage of license applications are being granted, right? If, if a state is granting basically none, then it doesn't matter um, what their permit system says, right? That's problematic. Um, and so I think that that's going to be, you know, that's going to be a big issue moving forward. We're going to see some challenges to states that have, you know, whether it's a, a, a disqualification for, for, for drunkards, like you mentioned, or whether it's something like a good moral character requirement or, uh, you know, a law that says you're allowed to deny an application if the applicant is dangerous, Right. These all seem like things that would require some level of discretion. And I think it, I think it really depends how you read Bruin. Now, in oral arguments, it became very clear that nobody on the court knew whether New York State granted 99.9% or 1%. So how will it be that these cases will come forward differently that the court would have that in front of them? 
Right. And this, I mean, this was a, a, a big point that Justice Breyer raised in his dissent is that there's, there was no fact finding, right? There was no trial here. So we didn't, we had no evidence, uh, the court had no evidence of how this system worked in practice. Um, I, I think what we'll see probably is that these will need to be as applied challenges. So, um, we'll, you know, New York's new permit system, for example, that they that they put into place post Bruin. You know, there have been some some challenges to it already, but I think it's going to be difficult to know, especially if this is about strictness, right? It's it's going to be difficult to for a court to evaluate that until it sees you know someone go through the process and actually be denied a permit. Andrew, you said no evidence and uh, cited Justice Breyer's dissent. I know I think of Justice Breyer as the 20th century Louis Brandeis. You know, he he's sort of the person who took up the idea of the Brandeis brief, the idea of there being evidence and data, uh, the idea of talking about what actually happens as important. It, is that era just gone with Breyer off the court and with a such a small um, dissenting minority? Is there anyone left on the court who believes what Breyer believed in terms of evidence, Joseph? Well, I guess I would say that even though, you know, we've been describing the court's test as being purely historical, and in a way it is, it presents itself that way, but the analogical part of it requires comparison, right, between the historical law and a modern law. And at least I have argued, and I believe this to be true, in order to do the modern side of that, you have to take account of at least some, you know, modern facts. Like, if we're going to be comparing the burdens imposed by historical laws to the burdens imposed by modern laws, well, we need to know what the burdens behind the modern laws are and what are the reasons for the modern laws. And so I think a faithful application of Bruin's test is still going to require, you know, I, judges don't often start their opinions with as much sort of, you know, data as Justice Breyer was comfortable doing. So maybe we won't see that quite as much, but I don't think there's really a way to a way to avoid it. And I guess I should say that the majority and some of the concurring opinions seemed pretty confident making assertions about things like the strictness of this regime without a basis in fact. And Justice Alito, in his concurring opinion, complained mightily about Justice Breyer pointing to, you know, the horrific toll of gun deaths. But his response was to point to anecdotes of people using guns in self-defense, I mean, which are modern. And so, I mean, you know, I think Justice Breyer had, in my view, a, a disciplined way of doing this kind of um, uh, you know, empirical, if you like, analysis or, you know, empirical, it's tied to his general view that you defer to the elected officials who are in a better position to do that kind of empirical work. Um, you know, he voted much more often than his colleagues to uphold laws wherever they came from, just on the basis that this is not our job to be doing this kind of policy analysis. I can imagine that going forward, this court, which seems very confident in its own views about history, will also be very confident in its views about, you know, what makes for good policy. And, dismissing uh, other arguments as irrelevant rather than as bad arguments, but when it agrees with them, putting them forward as good arguments. So let's actually talk about evidence. So one of the things that Duke University has done, and I think that it's been important to many people who are in the press, many people who are scholars and teachers, is to create the Duke Center for Firearms Law searchable database. And, and if you haven't looked at it, listeners, you should look at it because it, it's, it's a compendium of every law that has been on the books um, in the United States. So 
And, you know, look, you two are true believers, okay? I'm no longer a true believer, and we'll talk about that at the end of the podcast. Most political scientists gave up on this court in, you know, 1990, and with the Federalist Society supplying judges, and they have a very different argument about why this happened. They don't think it has anything to do with parsing the law. They think it has to do with naked politics and putting people on the court who would in fact deliver this particular decision and the Dobbs decision. But setting that aside, what what Duke is invested in is evidence and providing something that was not available when Scalia was writing his decision in Heller. So um, Joseph, start us off. Like, why did this happen at Duke? You know, why did they invest in this? And um, And then, Andrew, as the director of the center, I really want to hear from you as to, you know, where the center is going. Sure, I I can take things up to the present day, or actually, what I'll do is leave things off on Andrew's first day on the job, which happened to be the day that Bruin was decided. So Andrew has been in his role as executive director for precisely, I guess, one more hour uh, than Bruin has been has been in existence. But if we go back uh, three years, um, which is to when the when the center itself was was founded, I mean, essentially the 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 origin story here is that uh, along with Daryl Miller, um, who is the faculty co-director of the center. you know, I, um, we found ourselves um, looking out of the world a Second Amendment scholarship and seeing a couple things. One is that it was playing um, an outsized role in judicial decision making. So Heller itself cites secondary sources like scholarship more and more often, like more sources and more often than it cites all traditional legal materials like statutes and cases and constitutional revisions combined. So it is a an opinion that maybe it would have come out the same way, but it at least is citing to, which is sometimes a proxy, at least for influence, a lot of scholarship. Now, unfortunately, at the time Heller was decided, there were not a lot of people working on Second Amendment issues. Um, some of the scholarship was very good, um, and some of it, frankly, wasn't. Um, and some of it was the same people writing the same things and citing one another and kind of an echo chamber thing, or I would say two echo chambers, um, uh, essentially just a, a directly partisan divided debate about whether the Second Amendment is limited to the organized militia or whether it includes you know, the private right to, to, to arm self-defense. And we just thought that was not, frankly, up to the challenge of what we effectively have now, which is basically a brand new constitutional amendment. I mean, until 2008, the Second Amendment was essentially inert as a matter of constitutional law. Like, laws were not being struck down. There was no real jurisprudence uh, in the federal courts. And then in 2008, we get this huge decision in District of Columbia versus Heller, and all these questions are open. It's I make this comparison often, but it's a bit like what the First Amendment looked like a century ago when people like Oliver Wendell Holmes sort of breathed life into it. And then he and Brandeis and others like had to kind of shape, like, what is this amendment for? Like, what is the underlying purpose? Is it democracy? Is it self-actualization? Is it truth? Like, those kinds of questions confront the Second Amendment, and they, we thought, deserve the same kind of scholarly engagement that we give to other amendments like the First and the Fourteenth and so on and so forth. The other thing we wanted to do with the center was try to break down the you're kind of, you know, you're, you're forced to against us sort of mentality. Um, you know, still doing Second Amendment work, like, you know, you'll, you sometimes get asked, like, well, do you support the Second Amendment? And like, that's, you don't get that question when you do First Amendment work. It's just that it's kind of an incoherent question. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, people disagree what they think it means. But like, that what kind of, 
like <laughs> how do I even engage with that? Is is, is a little bit. Um, it's still, it's still, I don't know. Um, it still catches me. It, it, when although, it just, you know, Justice Stevens, in a sense, put, you know, called the question in his own book, in which he was, he was saying, "I don't believe in the Second Amendment. We should get rid of it." So, so I think you're right. I think there, there is an argument that says, actually, this has no place. Let's get rid of it. And as opposed to like, but, but do to you take sides on the amendment as it is already exists in the document? I, I agree. Well, and Justice Stevens, though, I should say, he was fine with the pre-Heller reading of the Second Amendment. I mean, you know, he's, he thought the court just messed it up, and the only way to fix it was with a, a, a further amendment. Uh, but had he had he commanded the majority in Heller, which we know now he thought he did, which is why he wrote this historical opinion, he thought maybe Justice Thomas would be so convinced by, you know, I'd say it's a very powerful history that he tells in his, uh, in his dissenting opinion. Um, he was wrong. <laughs> Justice Thomas joined the majority. Um, but, you know, had that view prevailed, again, it's a different view of what the amendment means and, you know, perhaps a very, very different one. But so we wanted to try to break that down and bring new people into the field and, you know, senior constitutional law scholars, criminal law scholars, historians, political scientists, sociologists, to try to just thicken the conversation a bit. Um, and uh, I think we've done that, you know, as, as well as I could ever have hoped. And a lot of the credit for that goes to our prior executive director, Jake Charles, who just joined the faculty at Pepperdine, uh, Caruso School of Law, he's now an assistant professor there, um, left big shoes, which have been ably filled uh, since Bruin was handed down um, by uh, by Andrew. I should hand it off to him. <laughs> uh, yeah, th- thank you, Joseph. And, you know, as you mentioned, I was lucky enough to, to start on the same day that Bruin came down. Um, but, you know, I, I think, Susan, as you can probably imagine, um, since Bruin was issued, we have seen a huge jump in in traffic to to the repository, right? And it's 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 going to be something that will be increasingly important under this historical framework for litigators, for policymakers, um, and you know, it, 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 having having sort of a collection of you know, right now it's about sixteen hundred historical gun laws that's available, it's easily searchable, um, is something that's going to enable um, the parties that are litigating these cases, the politicians that are trying to draft new laws within this framework um, to parse the historical record and to try to do the type of analysis that the court contemplates in Bruin. Um, I was looking the other day at, at one of these challenges that was filed to uh, New York's new uh, new laws, which you know designate a whole bunch of sensitive places and um, enact other regulations, you know, along with removing the proper cause requirement. And in one of those cases, the state recently submitted a letter asking for a you know, significantly oversized uh, brief for this preliminary injunction motion that, that's going to be decided. And the rationale was, you know, we need this space to actually do the type of historical analysis that the court in Bruin says should be done. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's really going to be, I think, a crucial resource moving forward. And we're hoping to, to expand the repository, to make it more user-friendly, and to, to hopefully add, you know, local laws, sort of city ordinances. You know, there's, there are a lot of gun regulations in our, in our country's history. And so to the extent that we can sort of put those in one place, um, that's going to be, to be very important. Um, to, to, to take uh, another thing that Joseph mentioned, which is sort of the, you know, the mission of encouraging uh, Second Amendment scholarship and in, encouraging the growth of this field, um, that's something that also needs to be done, especially post-Bruin, right? There needs to be sort of a doctrinal framework developed uh, around the decision that will guide courts that have to 
uh, have to apply the decision. I, you know, I mentioned it's, it's not really clear yet how many steps are involved, right? There are a lot of things that need to be figured out about Bruin. And I think, you know, making sure that we're sort of putting our heads together, bringing people together from different perspectives and trying to do that is, is something that we're really going to be focused on in the coming months and years. And, and I just want to say, coming from political science, that you have succeeded in creating a, a really interdisciplinary and respectful discussion. The ways in which Duke has welcomed people from sociology, from history, from political science, put them in conversation with each other has been great. And I, I want to pick up on something that Joseph said. You know, when I started doing work on Stand Your Ground, people said it was uh, distasteful. I actually had an editor of one of the best journals in political theory say, like, why are you even writing about this? I mean, and she, she said it in a public forum. She said, why don't you write about something like the First Amendment, something good? Why, why would you want to be, why are you so interested in this ugly thing? And, and I, I think that the ways in which uh, scholarship on the Second Amendment and guns developed, we, we know all of the plagiarism cases on both sides, um, uh, are really stunning and shocking. And I think it's partly because people are writing from a partisan place. They are writing based on some of their own beliefs, and it doesn't have the same kind of objectiveness. And so I think part of what Duke has tried to do is to lend some some academic and scholarly uh, space. Um, and I just want to say personally that at a time when I was being told this is stupid and you shouldn't be doing it, it was great to have that space at Duke. And, I, and I've always been grateful uh, to the institution and to people like Joseph and Daryl who you know, were behind having the institution um, uh, create this. And speaking of law schools, I said earlier that, you know, from political scientists' standpoint, just about everything you've said is quaint. So there's a, a lot of political scientists who just think that it's funny that legal scholars are still arguing about the analogies and, you know, whether Alito made a good analogy or a bad analogy because the way they see it is this is just a joke. This is, this is just rhetoric. This is just cover. And, you know, law schools have long been committed to teaching constitutional law through the lens of precedent, arguing from analogy rather than the political science view, which would say the power of the NRA, the power of the Federalist Society explains the Bruin decision. So, you know, they're... <laughs> That's not what you're doing. So, but does what happened in Dobbs, in Brune, make your teaching of con law this fall more complicated? Are, are, are you going to present originalism, this new originalism, as kind of a thoughtful, legitimate method of interpretation? Or are you going to include any of the sort of insights of political science of well, this is really just the Federalist Society handing off lists of judges to very powerful people who are then appointing those people who have this view, and that is why we have this. This is not an interpretation of the Constitution. This is this is a political strategy. It is, I think, the central challenge teaching constitutional law, especially of all the subjects that I've taught, um, 
is maintaining the right balance between the internal and the external perspectives here because it is you know i mean we are we are a discipline that you know has to take an internal perspective with regard to courts like the arguments will still be made the judges will still resolve them the justices are who they are and you know we have our own strong views maybe about who should be on the court and who we wish might you know uh, be there instead um but you know what we're left with are the are the sort of tools of our trade and so we do try to hone them as as best we can um i think Constitutional law scholars, and I'll, I'll just speak for myself, vary in the degree to which they're comfortable venturing sort of beyond the four corners of cases. Um, I think to teach cases without insights, you know, beyond them is kind of impossible for the same reason that the court's effort to do history without context is impossible. I mean, you can't, I mean, I couldn't teach, I'll pick one case, Dred Scott, without teaching like what what came before and what came after it. I mean, that wouldn't make any sense. Like you need to know the politics and the history and, you know, for the current court or for any court, you need to know the identity of the justices and, you know, perhaps increasingly the party of the nominating president um, to understand and predict sort of where they're, where they're going forward. I should say too, you know, um, and, and thank you so much for the kind words about the, the center, Susan. One of the things that makes it very, you know, it makes it le- that we are fortunate uh, about which Daryl and I are fortunate is having here at Duke some extraordinary scholars who work on guns who are not law professors. So you know, the the three Duke-based faculty affiliates of the center are um, Kristen Goss and Phil Cook, who are at the Sanford School for Public Policy. Um, uh, uh, Kristen, who's written a fantastic book on the, the missing movement for gun control in America, studies mostly the politics of guns. We certainly learn from her, cite her work um, uh, constantly. Um, Phil Cook. I I think is the single best and most influential sort of economist studying the sort of public health implications of various kinds of gun gun regulations over the years. And then Jeff Swanson, who's in our psychiatry department, who's a trained sociologist, who's an expert on the sort of um, among other things, the intersection of mental health and guns. So we try to sort of you know incorporate as much as we can insights from from everywhere else. But then to do, you know, to do our job in terms of teaching uh, does mean teaching um, a certain kind of argument. I mean, you use use the, um, the 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 word rhetoric. I think that's I think that's accurate. Um, we sometimes in con law refer to the grammar of constitutional law. Um, Philip Bobbitt at uh, the University of Texas, or now at Columbia, I guess, um, sort of famous for rolling out this uh, for for articulating this idea in a series of articles and books. And, and Bobbitt's basic argument is like it's wrong to think about constitutional law as having necessarily right or wrong answers, um, but there are rules for how you argue. Uh, There are modes of argumentation that are appropriate, and there are some that are not. Uh, And teaching those modes, one of which is historical, uh, is what legal education is uh, is about. So I guess that what we do the best we can is try to teach the grammar. Um, and as with the rules of grammar, people can form different sentences with them. But that's, that's at least the best we can do with the task. You asked, you know, have I gotten the have I gotten the syllabus ready basically for the fall? I'm happy I don't have to teach con law till the spring. It gives me more time to wrestle with Dobbs and Bruin, which um, I do not relish. Um, you know, Joseph, I, I struggle because, you know, what you just said, was sort of what drew me to constitutional law in graduate school. I sat in Mike McConnell and Cass Sunstein's classrooms because I had that privilege as a graduate student at Chicago. And as a political theorist, I was taken by everything that you just said, that this was the place in American politics in which we took arguments seriously. We took the way we argue seriously. Um, I, but I have to say that I go to bed at, now, at night now, and I wonder if arguments actually 
are still being made. And if we are at some breaking point, as I, I listen to the tone of some of the justices who seem to be recognizing that the rules are being broken, and it is an interesting scenario as to how um, resilient these these um, uh, disciplinary boundaries are for the judges and justices. And, and there's there's a there, I mean there's a continuing dialogue I hope between these sort of internal and external critiques. So I think I think Susan of of your piece that you wrote in the Washington Post I think two years ago maybe about you know when originalists stop becoming originalists, which is which is in the Washington Post monkey cage. People should find it online. It's fantastic. But that that's sort of a way when like an internal critique from law can make you know visible to people outside the law how what these justices say they're doing isn't working by its own terms which hopefully one might expect would lower the you know sort of political appeal of originalism going forward it doesn't constrain don't believe the hype but that that work it happened it, it's helpful to sort of start from i think hopefully to kind of start from within law like a pe- person like you has background and understanding of how this legal reasoning works can best show its flaws. Um, and hopefully that's part of the broader discussion about the desirability desirability of originalism or any other interpretive theory. No, and I appreciate your kind words about that piece, which is about coverture and Amy Coney Barrett's um, uh, appointment to the Supreme Court. But I have to tell you that I was having lunch with my daughter right after Dobbs, and she said, you know, Mommy, it, you were wrong. So your your piece is wrong. You said like they can't possibly, you know, if you take originalism to uh, to its logical conclusion, it would mean a return to coverture and patriarchy. And she said, so actually they did. And so I I think it's very very interesting that that piece actually maybe maybe will not hold up the way I hoped that it did, and instead takes us to a very dark place in which. In fact, we will be consistent, but we will be so consistent that we will go back to 1868 versions of firearms law and abortion laws and who we see as a person or a full citizen of the United States. Um, before we wrap up, we could talk, the three of us could talk about this forever. Uh, I just want to ask each of you um, if there's if there's something we haven't covered, something that's been on your mind about this case, you've had some time to think about it um, as, as we close up today. I'll just say two quick things. One, one on, on Bruin, I just want to emphasize again, like that Bruin is not the death knell for reasonable gun regulation going forward. Um, it is a, a moment of profound uncertainty, but so was Heller. And in the aftermath of Heller, what we saw was that the vast majority of Second Amendment challenges continued to fail. Um, and that I think still the primary obstacles to gun regulation in the United States are political and not yet at least judicial. Um, so, you know, conscientious legislatures and advocates out there should still be pushing for things like national background checks, which are clearly compliant with the Second Amendment, and yet we still don't we still don't have a universal system of it at the, at the at the federal level. And it's worth noting, I guess, on that that like within 72 hours of Bruin being handed down, we got the first major federal gun legislation in 30 years. I mean, it was just a whiplash period, again, still in Andrew's first few days on the job, um, that we got, you know, still legislate, even the, even the United States Congress able to pass some gun legislation. So I still hope and expect we'll see a lot of that at the, uh, at the state and local level too. The other thing I would say, just to emphasize um, what uh, Andrew is describing about, um, you know, the repository of historical gun laws, which is that the online database we host, which you, which you were nice enough 
to mention, Susan, is that um, we welcome uh, feedback, thoughts on that. You can find our, our email address and contact information on the blog if people are aware of sources or have suggestions. Um, we certainly welcome them because there is no single place where these laws live. Uh, if you are you know, out there and you happen to be doing local research and you know of gun laws, please let us know because we'd like to uh, incorporate what we can into the repository. And we'll make sure that this posts on New Books in History, which will hopefully get you some of those people who are down in the weeds looking at very local things. Andrew, where where are you in in the August after um, perhaps the most uh, fortuitous first day of work? <laughs> well, it's certainly been a, been a whirlwind uh, first couple of months, um, Susan. But, you know, I just wanted to pick up quickly on something that Joseph said, which is, you know, Bruin does not mean the end of gun regulation. I think that's something that, you know, if, if you look at how the case is reported in the press, if you look at, you know, people that may simply read an article or hear a soundbite about the case, they might think that, right? And I think there are some parallels there to Dobbs in that, you know, the way the case is reported, the way people read about it, they might think that the case itself bans abortion, right? They may not understand what it does. And I think that it's, you know, from our perspective, that that's, that's another one of these things that the center um, focuses on that the center thinks is really important is just educating people about that, educating people about what the decision actually does. Um, and I guess I'm a little bit maybe more optimistic than you are about sort of taking on the decision, you know, sort of on its face and, and, and you know, trying to sort of stress test the historical analysis that the court does and, you know, just, you know, you know trying to, you know, if, if we think that the analysis is wrong, if we think the analysis is flawed, checking it against history and, and seeing and seeing if, if it uh, you know, seeing how that comes out. And I think that that's going to be something that, um, you know, the center and, and legal scholars will be doing uh, for many years, but certainly will be focused on in the near future. Well, I can't thank both of you enough for taking time out in August uh, to talk about this case. Uh, you both have thought about it for so many years and have been so intensely studying it since it came out and we've had a chance to look at the opinions. So um, once again, Andrew, Joseph, thank you so much for being on Postscript and we'll see what the fall term brings us. Thanks so much, Susan. Hopefully not another Second Amendment case. I think we're going to take our hands full with this one. Thank you, Susan.